The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The National Park Service is the custodian of many of the most important Civil War battlefields, and it is on these battlefields that we continue to refight the war, debating interpretations as well as questions of land use and development. We'll talk today with someone at the forefront of that war, both as historian and as Park Service uh, representative, John Hennessy, Chief Historian of the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park, will be our guest today on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building. You're in Greenville, North Carolina, where it's a warm evening in May 2015. It's quiet. The students are gone. The baseball team is down in Florida in the conference tournament where they won a uh, stirring walk-off victory tonight in the bottom, bottom of the ninth inning this afternoon, I should say. Uh, but even though we're here at East Carolina University. I'm not speaking for the university or the history department or the baseball team or anybody else. Just myself and our guest will not represent the Park Service or any other institution. 
we're just talking here on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, I fill out every week a uh, set of notes about two uh, things to, to ask the guest about, uh, notes from the book uh, that, we, uh, that we'll be discussing if it's a book topic, and uh, a bit of chit-chat at the beginning. So uh, this time with our, our guest, who is uh, a, an important figure in the Civil War community, in the Park Service, I looked at the last time he was on the show, which was almost a year ago, almost five years, uh, let me do my math better, almost eight years ago to the day, uh, May 25th of 2007. doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but uh, time has flown past. And it was interesting to see what was going on in the, the world at that time uh, here on, on Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters. The week before, I had a terrible cold and could barely talk, and uh, our guest, uh, George Bradley, who'd written a book on Athens, Alabama, did all the talking and, and carried the show through. And it was also, at this time, eight years ago, that Civil War talk radio was, uh, oh, I, I don't know what the right term would be, that uh, there was the usual sort of corporate hijinks going on with the ownership uh, and uh the original owners of the radio, the internet radio station that operated uh, this enterprise, sold it to someone or was bought out or somehow changed hands. And the website that we once had, which uh, for which I wrote descriptions of each book and sent in pictures and op- managed the website myself, uh, suddenly disappeared and has never, never been seen again. Uh, many, many hours of work went into it and one day it was gone. Uh, I wrote on that day eight years ago that morale was low here at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters. But uh, I, at the time, I resolved to uh, uh, press ahead and see if we could continue doing what we were doing. And here we are eight years later, and things are thriving. We're 300 shows into this uh, effort. We, in that time, I've discovered it's not internet talk radio, it's a podcast. Well, actually, it's both, uh, a word that hadn't even been invented when we started doing this back in 2004. And uh, the need for an auxiliary website has been taken up uh, brilliantly by Mark Gaffney at impedimentsofwar.org, where he tells us who's going to be on the show next and who's been on the show and gives us links to the many past seasons, so that fixed itself, and uh, I continue to get interesting messages from from listeners and uh, support through the PayPal button on the Impediments of War website, and uh, the Voice America continues to produce the shows uh, with professional aplomb, so we get uh, good quality, and everything just continues to go along. I shouldn't say any more good things, because something bad will happen if I do, but uh, things are looking a lot brighter here at the headquarters than they were uh, eight years ago uh, this week, and that is good to know. They'll look even brighter uh, when we finish this season, move into next season, and I will be talking to you as a free professor, no longer department chair at that point, uh, I thought it would not be that big a deal and I would not look, make a big deal out of the fact that it's only 
you know, 89 days away, uh, as if I were counting them one by one. But today I was reminded that the unit annual report, along with the chair's individual annual report, were both due at the end of the week. And to come up with three to five bulleted points of how learning documented evidence of improvement in student learning based on assessment feedback. If I, if it were not for the fact that I know that my mother is listening, I would use a bad word at this point. Uh, historians, we, we, we write, we teach, we do what we know how to do. Uh, and no one asks, are, are you actually successful at teaching the students? Rather, they ask, can you put this into a documented numerical form that a non-historically literate person can understand. It's as if we were teaching our students to read and speak Chinese, but we had to document their success without using any Chinese because the bureaucrats want to be able to evaluate us without knowing our actual topic. Uh, It's endemic to higher education in American corporate life everywhere, so we're not the only ones suffering from it, but uh, man, I'll be glad when this is someone else's uh, uh, battle to fight, although I'm sure I will continue fighting it just uh, in a different guise. Well, let's talk about real battles instead. Um, Coming up in the future, normally I tell you who's going to be on the show next, and Next week, we will not have a live show. It'll be time for the annual Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, this hallowed ground tour. And I have been like the proverbial kid in the candy shop all week, looking at my shelves, thinking, oh, I'll take this guidebook for that battlefield and this memoir that I haven't read yet. I've been putting it aside. I'll read that one on the bus. And I'll read this one while I'm driving up there with one hand. No, just kidding. I will not attempt to read while driving. Uh, I will I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to talk with folks about history and share their interest and see these fascinating places. And I've heard from uh, several of, of you listening who are in the area, and if you are going to be around uh, Harper's Ferry or Antietam or Gettysburg or Fredericksburg or Chancellorsville or Petersburg or Appomattox uh, in the next uh, week and Send me an email, see if we can link up. I'd be happy to uh, put faces to names, talk with you for a bit. Uh, so let me know if you're going to be around there. Happy to do that. Always interesting to do so. So uh, who will be on next week? Nobody. We'll, we'll have to do a rerun while I'm out uh, on the field. And the week after that is up in the air as well. But one of the fun things about this trip is the opportunity to talk to people everywhere I go and at the different uh, historic sites, line up new guests. Uh, sometimes I, I run into other authors delivering tours on, on occasion, uh, or other professors that I know, or talk to the, the park personnel and get them to be on the show. So we'll get things lined up for the, the June programs over the next week, and I'll be back live in two weeks. And that will be something uh, hopefully you'll look forward to as much as I will. In the meantime, if you have just won the lottery in the past week and have quit your job in a huff and now have money and time next week, call Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. There's still room on the bus. Come and join us next week. It would be fun. First place we'll go will be Manassas, and that is the subject of a book by our guest, 
John Hennessy, Chief Historian at the uh, Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park. Uh, John, are you there? And we'll get that microphone open. Try can one more time. Me? I can hear you now. There we go. How are you? All right. Good evening, how are you doing? How are you? Good. So uh, I, I'm plumping away, uh, urging people to join us on the tour, which uh, we have lined up. And I'm looking forward to the fact you and I will be able to get together next Wednesday at, uh, at Chatham at the Park Service headquarters uh, outside of Fredericksburg. So uh, thanks for agreeing to, uh, to meet with us there. It's my pleasure. There's nothing, um, you know, for someone in, in our business, there's nothing better than being at a place that matters with people to whom the place matters. And uh, so uh, spending a little bit of time with your group will be uh, terrific. Now, when you and I were talking about this, I asked you what you were working on, and you mentioned, uh, I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with your book on the Second Battle of Manassas. But you have a book on the first Battle of Manassas, which I had not come across before. And do I understand that you are revising that to be re-released? Yeah, it was uh, the first book I ever wrote. I think I was 27 years old when I did it. And um, it was done as part of the Howard Battles and Leaders series. You might remember that way back when, which did a lot of very obscure stuff, and some of it really excellent that, uh, uh, you know, sites and and, and uh, engagements that never received any attention at all. Uh, but, you know, after I had left Manassas Battlefield and, in fact, left the Park Service for a while, I they asked me to do something on First Manassas, and uh, so I did. Um, it's a book that, uh, you know, didn't get a lot of attention, uh, but I like it. I'll like it better when I'm done revising it. And mm-hmm. uh, so Stackpole Books called me a about a year ago or so, and, and asked if uh, they could reissue it. And uh, I was happy to have that happen so long as I could kind of update it a little bit, fix the problems that are uh, inherent with a 27-year-old uh, <laughs> guy writing a, a book for the first time and, and polish it up a little bit. So that's what I've been working on is, is getting that out, and that's been a very interesting experience on so many levels. Well, let me ask you about that. Uh, one, most people, when they start reading Civil War, uh, a book many people come across is, is Jack Davis's Battle at Bull Run. That, that's a classic account. And more recently, uh, uh, Ethan Rafuse's book, uh, mm-hmm. is it Single Grand Victory, I think is the title, right, uh, right. R- updates that substantially. Uh, so you've got Classic books, 40, 50 years old. You've got more recent scholarly books. Where is yours going to fit in the spectrum? I wrote mine for a specific reason. Of course, I, you know, I worked at the park for five years back in the early 80s. It was the first job I had, and um, I loved it. Uh, but I always felt that you know, there is never really a clear understanding of what happened on the field at a given moment throughout the day. And uh, so, you know, I, as you know, I've, I've been involved with the interpretation of many battles, uh, Civil War mm-hmm. battles, you know, the park that I work at now, Second Manassas. Uh, but there is none that is more obscure and difficult to uh, kind of stitch together than First Manassas. And that remains so to this day. 
so my my purpose at the time was really to focus. I didn't I didn't really and I'm not going to really deal with kind of the larger issues uh of the ba- of the campaign. Uh my purpose is to look at it, at the human experience as it played out on that field, uh correct some of the conventional wisdom uh that exists that is often wrong. I I think conventional wisdom and wrong Sometimes they're synonyms, and uh, so to tackle some of that, uh, and to write a book that vividly, I hope, tells the story uh, and reveals some things that people have never really quite understood. My great advantage of of uh, you know writing about a place like Manassas is, you know, I spent four years on the ground, and uh, uh, you know that that there's nothing as you as you well know, there's nothing as uh, useful and, in fact, in many ways inspiring than than knowing the ground well. And uh, so, you know, my original intent was to accord significance to places uh, on the battlefield because, you know, these battlefields, when you look at them the first time, they all look like just places until you mm-hmm. accord significance to them. And, and so my purpose in many ways was really to honor the event by understanding it better and, and relating it to what happened on the ground. And in the course of that, I've encountered uh, a lot of conventions that uh, need to be corrected. And in fact, conventions that I embraced the first time I wrote this book, I'll be correcting some of them. And uh, so it's been a, a humbling experience uh, because, you know, the book I wrote all those years ago, 20, what, 20, I don't know, almost 27 years ago, uh, you know, it's not, it needs to be improved. So it's been a little bit of a humbling experience to go back and, and revise your own stuff, especially at this distance of time. It's interesting that for people not in the history world, the, the word revisionist is used as an insult, as though there was something wrong with, as in your case, learning from a lifetime of writing and research and walking the battlefield, and, and that the idea that you shouldn't revise your previous work and make it better seems to me absurd. Uh, of course, we revise our stuff all the time if we're any good. So uh, uh, there's a lot to look forward to when this comes out. We're going to take a, a short break, but when we come back, I'm going to ask you for if you can give us a spoiler and tell us uh, something, uh, some example of the conventional wisdom about uh, First Manassas that. Uh, that you've uncovered in, in the years since the first version of this book came out. So we'll do that when we come back in just a minute. Uh, I'm talking today with John Hennessy, Chief Historian at the uh, Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park. John, is that is that your correct title, or am I looking at old notes when I say that? It is. It is my that's, correct that's, title. Oh, I want to make sure I get it right. Uh, mm-hmm. My title is still uh, the the uh, chief uh, talker here at Civil War Talk Radio, and we will be back in just a minute with more Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with John Hennessy of the National Park Service, Chief Historian at the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park. Uh, we've been talking about his first book, written uh, many, many years ago on the First Battle of Manassas, written shortly after the battle, in fact, and now, uh, now many years later, revising it. Uh, and, you know, John, you were talking about the importance of walking the battlefield, and last year, as I, after doing the, 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 uh, this hallowed ground tour, uh, our, our group visits Manassas, but, you know, we have a limited time there, uh, walk around the main part near the visitor center. So when I was driving back to North Carolina at the end of the week, I stopped there again and uh, went down under the bridge along uh, by the, the water, by, by the run itself. And it was striking that you never really get a sense in books that this two-foot deep stream is not much of an obstacle but those steep banks, those eight-foot banks, that's an obstacle. You can't get a wagon or an artillery piece across there. Uh, and you wouldn't know that, uh, or you wouldn't viscerally know it until you go down and walk around there. Uh, and, and so for me, that was one of those moments where I said, oh, yeah, that's, that's why this was significant. Uh, what's an example of something you found that, uh, where, where, where the conventional wisdom isn't right about the battle? Well, and and I say this having contributed to the conventional wisdom in in many ways over my lifetime. Uh, I, I would offer that uh, uh, you know my treatment. I, I think we have a tendency to accept these characters like Irvin McDowell, the Union Army commander, as caricatures, as um, you know, kind of as they've been delivered to us. And it's I think it's in, in incumbent on all of us who write about them to take a little bit of a deeper look at, at these things. Some of these kind of questions or, or issues that emerge or these things that 
seem to indict them in the eyes of history are often a lot more complicated than we we have previously believed. And certainly McDowell at, at First Manassas uh, is a much more complicated figure than than uh, what uh, I have envisioned over the years, uh, facing some real substantial obstacles. But, you know, I think the for me, and in, in looking at McDowell, the great question, uh, the, the hardest issue that he faced is what did victory look like? You know, at this point in the war, there was everyone, were the Confederates just going to run when the Yankees marched out of Alexandria and Washington? Would they run at the first shot? Was the morning retreat on July 21st, 1861, was that victory? Um, Or what would it take? What was victory? And I think uh, it was kind of this creeping realization of what victory was. And and so there's an example. I think this whole idea that, uh, you know, first Manassas awakened the world to what the world, what the war was going to be and that it was going to be this long grinding event, I think is vastly overstated. Uh, You know, even in 1864, 1863, before virtually every battle, soldiers expressed the belief that this would be the last battle, just as they did at First Manassas. So uh, I think that uh, there's a lot of corrections, there's a lot of uh, little things on the ground that uh, um, I just never looked at closely enough. I just kind of accepted the the work of predecessors and the conventional wisdom that governed us. Um, you know, there's nothing scandalous in any of all any of this. I think there's just you know, some clarity that comes with having lived a life and confronted a lot of issues of management and strategy myself in life, um, I think you could become a little bit more attuned to how our historic figures confronted the same sorts of issues in, in, in their existence. I, I think that's absolutely right. I've often recall the difficulty getting you know, two kids, two dogs, and my wife and myself into the van to leave on time for a vacation, and then thinking, you know, George McCollin moved 120,000 people down to the peninsula. Uh, I, 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 you have to have a lot of nerve to criticize someone for being slow uh, if you've never done something like that. Not to say we can't be, you know, we can't offer judgments on, on professional performances of these people, but I think you're absolutely right that as one gets more experience actually trying to do things, you become more, uh, I don't know if sympathetic is a word, but more more aware of the complexity of what is going right. on. We, we, you know, Americans just, we love simplicity. We love <laughs> clarity, as, and, and we demand it. And mm-hmm. um, But if you step back and look at your own lives, you know what, nothing's as simple as, I mean, even in our own lives, when we look back, at our, our lifetime, our careers, we strip it down, we simplify it. You know, for me, high school was great, college sucked, and it's as simple as that. Well, of course, it wasn't as simple as that. Uh, but with history, we do the same sorts of things. We love to char- characterize and simplify and clarify. And, um, you know, we've done that and with, with history and with events like this. And uh, while there's often a kernel of truth in the simplicities, there's always way more to it than than what we have been been given over the years. I, I think a lot of people are drawn to studying the past partly to get away from the complexity of modern life. That that they have 
when they initially start looking at an era like the Civil War, they see, well, here was a time when issues were clear, there's good guys and bad guys, there's right and wrong, there's morality and honor and decency, and that was a much simpler world to live in. And it's it's fun to vacation there mentally. Uh, but of course, as soon as you start reading about it, you realize it was easily as complex, if not more so, than, than our world in terms of the issues people faced. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of I have a, a degree in business as well, and I've always been very interested in these men as managers and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of the approach they take to problem solving. And, uh, you know, one of the things that strikes me is that we know these guys. I mean, we've worked with these people in our careers and our lives. So, you know, we've all worked with a someone who found every reason in the book not to do something. We found, we've all worked with someone who, you know, if it needs to be done, he's going to find a way or she's going to find a way to do it no matter what uh, and everything in between. And, and you know, I think we instinctively realize in our own lives that these things and these people are not simple, uh, that, that they are very complex, and, and, and yet we presume that our predecessors were not. And uh, uh, it vastly understates them and the complexities that they face and often just simplifies the events that we're dealing with to the point of even occasional silliness. Well, this is a good segue to the, uh, the an issue that you and I mentioned when we were talking last week. The sesquicentennial has just about played out. We're in May of 2015. Uh, 150 years ago, President Johnson was getting ready to declare the war, the rebellion, over. Uh, from the from the viewpoint of somebody who works with the public, from from the Park Service vantage, has the past commemoration of the sesquicentennial done a better job dealing with these complexities than the centennial did, or uh, has it lived up to what you'd hoped it would do? Well, I I think um, that that's a complicated question with complicated mm-hmm. answers. I think the the simple answer is yes, it has been a vastly more kind of thoughtful uh, and nuanced attempt to kind of stand back and understand this event in ways that perhaps we hadn't, haven't looked at it before. Uh, not everybody embraces that. Again, you know, the attraction to simplicities and those, those pieces, those gems of conventional wisdom are, for some people, precious. And when you challenge them, it makes them mad. And... Uh, you know, and, and they respond by by uh, attacking and trying to stamp out the idea or the new idea, the revision, if you will, like the body does an infection. Uh, but we haven't seen much of that. I think that, uh, you know, the variety of programming that was undertaken during the sesquicentennial, uh, both in terms of its content, you know, everything from, you know, dealing with, the reality that this war touched every corner of American society in some significant way, and certainly on these battlefields, touched these communities in ways that uh, we can only can't even can hardly imagine today. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a certain amount of historical justice that was seen during the sesquicentennial. You know, when we talk about civilians, for example. Uh, you know, the default is, okay, in Fredericksburg, the, the arrival of the Yankee Army was a horror to the 
to the local civilian population. And that's, and then we but in, in making that statement, you forget that almost exactly half of the civilian population was enslaved. And for them, the arrival of the Union Army was no disaster at all. And uh, um, and so to 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 do that, to take that broader look and to understand what this war meant in all its implications and to all the people it touched, um, I have to say that I've been pretty impressed with the public's uh, willingness to embrace those stories. And uh, so, you know, was the, the sesquicentennial the clamorous uh, sort of success that some people hoped with cash registers ringing and, and uh, you know, that sort of thing? No, it was a pretty thoughtful, uh, pretty uh, on occasion subdued uh, event. But I think that for those who experienced it, and there were, I don't know, probably close to a half a million visitors at, at sesquicentennial events in the National Park Service uh, sites. We had uh, nearly 80,000 at our events at Fredericksburg alone. Uh, for, the, for those people who were there, for many of them, they'll remember it the rest of their lives. It had great meaning and great power. And uh, I will say this, uh, for those of us who work for the National Park Service, and uh, specifically for, for, for the park that I help manage in Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania, um, there has been no more meaningful event in our career uh, and no more fulfilling event in our career than the programming that we did for the 150th. It wore us out, just about killed us, uh, but, boy, I think to a person, we all stand back and say, that, that was good. It was important, it was useful, and uh, I think it was important to the health of the nation. And uh, I, So I'm very proud of what the Park Service has done. Um, I think it turned out in a way of public response almost precisely as I would have expected it to. And, uh, but Americans adopted a very thoughtful, uh, commemorative tone to this event. Unlike nobody, nobody was calling it a celebration. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike the centennial, uh, so it was a different feel. Uh, but boy, I, I I can't say at this point, bleary-eyed and as as tired as as we have been at the end of this thing, especially after Appomattox just a couple weeks ago, uh, that I want to do it again tomorrow. Uh, but boy, am I glad that that I was involved with it. It was a great honor and. Uh, uh, one of, certainly one of the high points, probably the high point of my career. Well, that that is wonderful. It's great to hear that it was successful in that way. Uh, did at, at your place or others that you know of did the sesquicentennial leave tracks behind? Are, are there things a visitor might see or hear? Uh, what was it all? I don't want to say ephemeral. Uh, you know, people give conference papers and so on that that turn into books that last longer than you and I will last. But, uh, you know, if if somebody is listening to this and go, oh, wow, I missed that, uh, is there any trace left behind? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in our park, um, we had the good fortune of receiving funding to do uh, new exhibits at both of our visitor centers at at, uh, Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. Uh, right at the beginning of the of the 150th, 
and uh, those were uh, dedicated last year, each of them. Um, and those exhibits, not only are they a direct outgrowth of the sesquicentennial, they were a success, a sesquicentennial initiative themselves, but they benefited tremendously from the immense amount of work that our staff has done in preparing programs, uh, doing research uh, in preparation of those programs. One of the things that, uh, uh, you know, I, I always try to make sure that every year we're doing programs that we've never done before, not only because the public loves things that they've never experienced before, but because we learn so much in the process. And that knowledge becomes part of our toolbox, and we use it over and over and over again in some way. So, uh, you know, for example, we do history at sunset every every summer, 10 Friday nights, 10, 10 consecutive Friday nights. We go out for about 90 minutes to a place that many times most people have never been to. We're going to do, for example, Bell Plain this year. Uh, never done a public program there. We're going to do the Carpenter Farm, which was the second Corps hospital at uh, uh, the Battle of the Wilderness. Never done a public program there. Uh, and, and our preparation for those programs will live on because we've just, I mean, the, the knowledge that we gain, we try to make sure that that what we do in the way of gaining knowledge ourselves Sometimes we're just learning stuff for ourselves that people have already gone before us and learned this stuff. But a lot of times we're learning new stuff. I mean, that's why we started our blog at the park, uh, Mysteries and Conundrums, which is a way for us to share the the cool things that we find and and learn over the years. So uh, the the legacy of the 150th is tremendous, uh, both in terms of kind of the content of our programs, even the nature of our programs. Um, we we get requests all the time to redo things that we did during the 150th, uh, and and we will continually redo them over time. So uh, that's been real exciting and and, uh, and and very interesting. And I think the uh, the sesquicentennial will echo for for quite a while through the National Park Service. Well, that's again very encouraging. I'm looking forward to. Uh seeing the exhibit you mentioned, I saw the Chancellorsville one last summer and it was outstanding. Uh, so it was built by Formations Inc. of uh, Portland, Oregon, who yeah. had built the exhibit at the, the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where I spent nine years. Uh, right. I, I worked with them uh, in building that, uh, collaborated in designing and building that, and it was the best professional experience I've probably ever had, and I, I would they, agree. They it's that, I've, I have. I used to be an exhibit planner, and I've done uh, oh, probably thirty to forty major exhibit projects in my life, and now the Chancellorsville one was the best of them all. Yeah, the formations people are just, just outstanding, and yeah. working with with the content people, they, they're not. Uh, they're great. So I'm I'm excited very much to see the Fredericksburg uh, Visitor Center, which was closed uh, when we were there last year because of construction. And there was a tornado there the year before when I took uh, the group there. So I'm maybe a bad luck charm, but uh, uh, we we spent the previous summer we spent uh, an hour in the basement, and the the Rangers were wonderful at keeping a crowd of mixed uh, Civil War uh, students and. Uh, you know, ordinary tourists and little kids and everybody all in this small area and kept everybody uh, under control. It's the kind of thing, I guess, makes you go to work every day because you don't know what it's going to be like. 
Yeah, I remember that day, as a matter of fact. It was a vivid, <laughs> lively day in Fredericksburg. It, it was exciting. Well, we're going to take another short break. We'll come back talk some more about what's happening with the Park Service and with your own research. I'm talking today with John Hennessy, Chief Historian at the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with John Hennessy, Chief Historian at the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park. Uh, and John is also the author of a very well-known book on the Second Battle of Manassas and a perhaps less well-known one on the First Battle of Manassas, but soon to be reissued, revised, and updated, coming out from Stackpole Books. Uh, a, a very prolific civil war and military publisher, so something we can look forward to there. Uh, John, I wanted to ask you a question about social media and the Civil War and the Park Service. That this is a you, you mentioned it briefly when we were talking in an earlier segment. Uh, in the world we live in, uh, on the one hand, you, you said we've had a very thoughtful commemoration through the sesquicentennial uh people have, have you know attended events at park service sites and read books and held conferences and so on and we've seen less of the commercialism and simplification and and sort of silliness that, that accompanied the uh the centennial back in the 1960s but if you go on social media you can start a flame war on any Facebook page you want by making 
any you know particular comment about the Civil War. Uh, it, it's very easy to find to, to get people riled up and to find people saying the most outrageous things. Uh, it's not far below the surface. Is, is social media helping us or hurting us in, in understanding the past, do you think? Um, well, I think it's a double-edged sword, but I think that the, the positive edge is a much sharper and broader one than, than the negative edge. You know, I think the people who get upset are those who are not unwilling to accept those sorts of challenges to conventional wisdom. That, and, and often it's not just that. It's also cherished cultural understandings of the war and and when you challenge stuff like that it 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 makes people mad and uh uh you know this whole idea for example i mean i i have been struck over and over again and often kind of wondered aloud in public why is it that we argue so vociferously about whether or not slavery caused the civil war if you want to start an online argument Mm-hmm. That's, go, go ahead. Any any of your listeners can go out in the next 15 seconds and probably start an <laughs> online argument about that by saying the Civil War was caused by slavery. And uh, it's it's very interesting why that is, and that's a whole other talk show uh, segment to, to deal with that. Um, so I, I think there is a, a, an element of kind of the his, historical world out there that has gotten a voice that maybe we wish wasn't quite so loud uh, by using social media, but that's okay. I mean, I have great faith in the marketplace of ideas, and, and these things will work themselves out. I will say one of the, to me, and I was thinking about this today, uh, one, to me, one of the, the most important revelations of the sesquicentennial is not only how many people use social media to be engaged with what we were doing at Fredericksburg and you know Chancellorsville and the Overlane campaign, uh, but but how important it was to them. Uh, and just how, I mean, I, I was astonished at the intensity and the willingness of people to follow almost everything that we did and the importance of them doing that for them. Uh, we had people tell us all the time, over and over again, you know, how much that meant to them to have at least that connection to what we were doing. And uh, so I think for the Park Service as a whole, you know, national parks, you know, there's 407 of them at least this week, and changes seems, seems to change every week, but there's 407 units, and the vast majority of Americans will, will visit maybe 10 of them if they're lucky in their lifetime. Uh, but in some way, it's now easy to engage with almost all of them. And uh, so we've had great rewards from engaging through our Facebook page. Um, we have a couple of Twitter accounts that we use. Uh, our, our, the, the blog that three of us on the staff developed, Mysteries and Conundrums, I mean, we've had in the last five years close to three-quarters of a million people. Uh, wow. Visit that site. Uh, you know, I, we haven't given tours to three hundred, three quarters of a million people <laughs> in the last five years. That's for sure. Uh, so this is a great thing, and it's a great way for us to, for people to engage us, and for us to engage them. And uh, you know, whatever difficulties or or 
you know, unpleasantness might accompany it, it's way worth it. It's it's way worth it. And you know what? I think the percentage of people who use social media to interact with history, who are thoughtful and considerate uh, and understand that this history can be seen in more ways than than one, uh, the percentage on social media is probably at exactly the same as it is uh, in the real world. And uh, uh, so I'm all for it. I think it's a tremendous tool for us and one that uh, I hope we use more and more and more. Well, I, I think, I mean, here you and I are you know, communicating uh, in a format that wasn't available 15 years ago and uh, hopefully reaching people who, uh, you know, otherwise wouldn't get to sit and talk with us. So it, like, it does I mean, have... you're remarkable. How, how much in the digital world lasts eight years? I mean, you've been around for a long time. And, 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 and I mean, you're, you're as enduring as Joshua Chamberlain. Did, well, <laughs> I, I would like to be. Um, it, it, this is the eleventh, I think, eleventh or twelfth eleventh season. I mean, nothing of, online lasts eleven years. Nothing. No, it, it's really astonishing. Uh, it, it does surprise me, and uh, you know, I, I filled in for. Uh, there were like three hosts the first month of the show. Harold Holter was one of them, and he couldn't do it. And so, uh, World Talk Radio called me, and I said I would do a show, and I did one, I did two, and then I did three hundred and twelve more, and and go. it just keeps happening. It it, uh, uh, it is it it does surprise me, but it's always fun because uh, I always learn something new. I like working with the public in a a museum or a historic site, it, every day is interesting. Every day is different. People come with different questions and different approaches and uh, have different experiences. Uh, let me ask about one of the traditional battles that the, the Park Service and other uh, people in the Civil War community are always fighting, uh, the, the battle over land use and development. Uh, where is that trending these days? Well, I think um, it's, it's been an interesting, since the last time we talked, uh, which was, what, 2007? That's right. Uh, which was at the peak of the economic boom. Of course, we've mm-hmm. gone through the Great Recession, and and that certainly had a, an immense impact. Um, at our park, we would have, up until 2007, review or comment on probably 40 development projects a year wow. on or near the park boundary. Uh, and by 2010, if we, if we commented on three, uh, that would have been a lot. It was a profound impact on that. Now, of course, the economy is recovering and and things are accelerating uh, once again. Um, I think I think that uh, I think there's a greater understanding on the part of developers, on the part of localities, on the part of the park service uh, that you know these are having a national park in your midst. You know, how much would it cost to go out and get the national visibility on your own for a community that having that arrowhead in your community gives you for nothing? I mean, that's a tremendous level of national visibility that that you, I don't know, I suppose you could buy it, but it would cost millions and millions and millions of dollars every year to buy that level of visibility. Um, And and I think that there's a a growing, there's a good understanding of the value of that by and large. I think there's also a growing um, 
idea that these places are not only valuable for their historic nature and the lessons they teach us and how they inspire us and discourage us and educate us about the, the greats and the ills of our nation's past. Uh, so, so there's that. But there's also, these are also open spaces in communities, mm-hmm. in our case, that is you know, one of the fastest-growing regions in America. Uh, and so I think that uh, uh, that value has emerged uh, over time as well. Um, you know, the real challenge, the great challenge to a place like Fredericksburg or any of them, really, is not so much the big, you know, Manassas Mall sorts of things, the Walmart at the Wilderness sorts of mm-hmm. things. Those are not the... Those are, relatively speaking, oftentimes the easier ones to deal with. Where, where, where I get discouraged or most worried is, is, the, is the hundreds of tiny little things, the thousand cuts, you know, mm-hmm. the stoplight here, the turn lane there, the subdivision there. Uh, it's just 12 houses, not a big deal, but pretty soon, you know, you've got traffic stacked up in the middle of the park and things like that. Those are much harder to deal with, and and uh, uh, but I think we have good working relationships. I think there's an expectation that that the Park Service will their voice will be heard. On our part, there's an there's an understanding that ours is a voice, an important voice, not the only voice. Uh, and we are also acutely aware that you know while we may own the places in some ways, and by we I mean the people, the the, the government, the Park Service. The community really dictates the sense of place, and uh, so there's very much a mutual interest in uh, in working on these issues. So I see it, uh, you know, it waxes and wanes with the the, the politics of of the locality, which uh, you know that's like a big pendulum. You know, in every mm-hmm. community, it's a pendulum. Um, but generally speaking, I think if you compare now to say 20 years ago. Uh, it is uh, night and day in terms of uh, a recognition that these precious places, landscapes, need to be factored into the future of the community and not just uh, left to be and expected to emerge on the other side in 500 years. Remember, we're supposed to be around for as long as there is in America. No, and, absolutely. Uh, that's a long time. And uh, so, you know, it, it is sometimes hard to reconcile a planning horizon, ours, which is 500 years or 1,000 years, <laughs> with a local planning horizon that might be four years or whenever the next election is. True. It's a different way of seeing the world. We've only got just a minute left, and I'll just do something really unfair and throw you a complete curveball. Uh, I was thinking about uh, Jake Borat's film on Gettysburg and the technology used to film the battlefield uh, with drone technology, cameras remotely flying over the battlefield. Are drones going to to affect the Park Service? 30 seconds. What do you think? Well, the Park Service has a pretty hard, hard and fast uh, uh, regulation against the use of drones in, in over national parks. Um, I, I think the more pertinent issue is what use can the Park Service uh-huh. uh, put to drones, and I think there's tremendous potential there. And uh, I do hope that we uh, engage that technology soon and often uh, to help tell our stories. It, it does seem very promising uh, uh, 
you know, as with social media, there, there are ways to turn these new technologies to enhance the telling and understanding of history, and I'm, I'm sure that will happen. And I'm sure the Park Service will be in the forefront of it. John, it has been a great pleasure talking with you. I'm delighted to say we can do some more of it, you and I, next Wednesday uh, Good in person. And uh, I'll be there with my, my new friends on the bus. And uh, uh, for the rest, uh, listeners, if you haven't read uh, Return to Manassas, uh, uh, what, no, what's the exact title? Uh, Return to Bull Run. Return to Bull Run. That's, I knew it didn't sound right. Return to Bull Run. Uh, the, battle, the Second Battle of Manassas, uh, a wonderful book. And uh, if you've already read that one, get it when it comes out, the, battle, the first Battle of Manassas that John Hennessy is revising right now. And go see the battlefields at Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, Spotsylvania, and so on. Our guest has been Chief Historian John Hennessy. John, it's been a pleasure. See you next week. Thank you very much. Thank you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.